This is Gil Manser, welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I am delighted to welcome one of my favorite writers, Alexander McCall Smith, the internationally beloved, best-selling author of the number one ladies' detective agency. Today we have a chance to talk about and hear from his newest challenge, updating one of Jane Austen's classics in his novel, Emma, A Modern Retelling. Alexander McCall Smith was born in Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe, and was educated there and in Scotland. After becoming a law professor in Scotland, he returned to Africa and helped set up a new law school at the University of Botswana. For many years, he was a professor of medical law at the University of Edinburgh and has been a visiting professor at a number of other universities elsewhere, including ones in Italy and the United States. He is now Professor Emeritus at the University of Edinburgh, in addition to holding honorary doctorates from 12 universities. In 2007, Alexander was made a Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, or CBE, by Queen Elizabeth for his services to literature. And in 2010, he was awarded the Presidential Order of Merit by Ian Karma, the President of Botswana. Alexander has written more than 100 books, including specialist academic titles, short story collections, and a number of immensely popular children's books but he is best known for his internationally acclaimed number one ladies' detective agency that I first read while vacationing in Hawaii. Since then, I've been fortunate to read Friends Lover's Chocolate, the second in a series featuring a female sleuth named Isabel Dalhouse. How Dalhousie, is it? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, that's right. Yeah. Dalhousie. The Unbearable Lightness of Scones from his 44 Scotland Street series and the standalone collection of African folk tales entitled The Girl Who Married a Lion. Alexander McCall Smith currently lives in Edinburgh with his doctor wife Elizabeth and has two daughters, Lucy and Emily. His hobbies include playing wind instruments, and he is co-founder of an orchestra musical group called the Really Terrible Orchestra, in which he plays the bassoon and his wife plays the horn. He's also written several librettos, including one for the Okavango Macbeth, set among a troop of baboons in the Okavango Delta which has been staged in Africa and in the U.K. Today, we're going to talk with Alexander McCall Smith about his latest challenge, the updating of a classic Jane Austen novel in Emma, a Modern Retelling. Alexander, I want to thank you for your wonderful books and welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you very much indeed, Gil. Thank you. We'll soon talk about how a medical law professor came to be a storyteller and best-sung novelist. But first, I'd like to hear how you got roped into the perilous task of retelling this much-loved Jane Austen tale. It came as a bit of a surprise to me. I had a visit uh, from my London agent who said that the publishers, uh, HarperCollins in the UK, were starting something called the Austen Project, and would I like to uh, participate in it? And in particular, uh, would I like to do a new version of Jane Austen's Emma? And uh, I thought about that, probably not for more than about 45 seconds. Uh, (laughs) And then I said yes, uh, because it's not every day you're asked to write a Jane Austen novel. And uh, I thought this would be great fun. And then having thought about it later on, I thought of all the reasons why that was the right thing to to say. So I started fairly shortly uh, thereafter, and I enjoyed the task immensely. So 
really it was part of a, a part of a plan by a particular publisher to get a number of uh, contemporary writers mm-hmm. to, to do these versions. Other people were given other books. Pride and Prejudice is Curtis Sittenfeld, I think, mm-hmm. who's going to be setting that in the United States. Joanna Trollope uh, did Sense and Sensibility, and Val McDermott did Northanger Abbey. So uh, it's, it's a variety of people. Is Emma a book that you remember fondly from your younger days? Well, I, I had read it before, um, but I hadn't read it recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane Austen is a, a writer uh, to whom one can go back, I think, again and again. And so it was a great pleasure to sit down and read Emma again before I did my, my own version. Uh, I think she's a wonderful writer. She's so amusing. And, and she's uh, writing in 1815, as I remember. And she's yes. writing at the beginning of the 19th century. Yeah, she's she's very contemporary, you know. She doesn't. I don't think she's dated very much. I mean, some right. of the language obviously is 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 different, and some. Well, you do have to look up a few of the words, yeah. and references, and some some words, of course, are, are used in a, in a in a very different sense, a totally different sense. So, a good example of that is the word to condescend. Mm-hmm. That has pejorative connotations, obviously, if we use it now. But uh, then it was it was fairly positive if somebody condescended to you. It was a good thing to do. So there are uh, occasions where you come across a word where the meaning has, has shifted over the years. But I think that she's uh, she she really is, is is still very approachable. Another very contemporary writer, who's somebody who seems to be very contemporary, who hasn't dated, is Robert Louis Stevenson. I think he also can be read mm-hmm. um, today without feeling that uh, this this, this is uh, old fashioned. Um, but I think Jane Austen, um, maybe uh, some people might be put off by the apparent antiquity of the, the books. There may be some people who feel, well, this is going to be not very accessible to them. They don't want to read uh, the the original version, which mm-hmm. is a pity, yeah. because I think that they would find that they, they, they would be fine with it. Well, let me ask you the question that came to mind when I had this come through the mail. And I picked it up and I said, oh, my word, there must be 7,000-fold, you know, really people who are such a fan of Jane Austen and Emma in particular that to try to work with it, to bring it up to date, Mm -hmm. to uh, change the, you know, the time sense, which you do entirely Mm -hmm. in here, um, probably didn't go over very well to some people. Well, I think that's right. I think, uh, and I was aware of that, of course, at the very beginning, I was aware of the dangers involved in in doing anything with uh, Jane Austen, Mm -hmm. uh, because there will be those who will say Jane Austen doesn't need to be rewritten and Jane Austen uh, doesn't need to be messed around with. uh, And there are probably quite a few people who take that that view. Uh, Now, I think uh, I can see certainly um, why they're, they're defensive of their of of their their gem because she's such a wonderful writer, and I uh, understand how people may not want to um, have things done to uh, books that they like very much in, in, indeed. But I think that Jane Austen um, is a, a writer whose uh, stories are almost like the Greek myths in a sense. They've become part of the cultural patrimony um, of of the world to such an extent that. It's almost like retelling the story of um, 
uh, Oedipus or, or any of these. Or uh, Macbeth with baboons. Or Will indeed, yes, that's another example. <laughs> yes, yes, quite right to point that out. And perhaps quite, not quite as radical as doing Macbeth, <laughs> Macbeth with baboons. But I, I think that she, she has that st- status. And so she's part of the, part of the um, cultural patrimony of most people who are interested in English literature at all. And therefore, uh, a reworking done with respect is, is I think, perfectly, uh, perfectly appropriate. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it in a flippant way, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want to do it without um, uh, fundamental respect for her work. And yet, at the same time, I, I don't object to people doing odd new versions. I mean, the famous example, of course, is, is uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, right. which was written... And there was another one where they put sea monsters into the uh, into the book. Now that, that that's all right. That's that's innocent fun, and there's no problem with that. There are also wild and wanton Jane Austen books where, uh, uh, with bodices being torn, et cetera. exactly. Yes, yes. Um, so again, that's another another area altogether. I'm not involved in 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 that, but I don't think one needs to be too um, straight faced about these things. Jane Austen is a wonderful, amusing, entertaining writer. And I think that I've tended to, to look for the amusing, amusement, for the possibilities of, of the comic in, the, in these, these books. Okay, I'm going to do something for our listeners. I'm going to read the opening of uh, Jane Austen's Emma, just the, from the first chapter. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. She was the youngest of two daughters of a most affectionate, indulgent father, and had, in consequence of her sister's marriage, been mistress of his house from a very earlier period. Her mother had died too long ago for her to have been more than an indistinct remembrance of her caresses, and her place had been supplanted by an excellent woman as governess, who had fallen little short of a mother in affection. And this takes place just after that governess's wedding. So she is nearly 21. Mm-hmm. Your book, in contrast, starts before she's born. Yes. yes. Now, as a psychological educator, I found that fascinating because you gave us backstory. Yes. And I'm wondering where this came from. Uh, the backstory was, was pretty much made up. Mm-hmm. So there are various points in, in my version where, uh, many points, in fact, where I, I make up details, uh, because I think otherwise one would end up just doing a modernization of an existing text, which is not what I wanted to do. So right. I've, written, I've written something which I hope is fresh, which is a new story. So I have taken certain liberties um, throughout the, the, the book, uh, and uh, I was allowed to do that because the publishers very specifically said, do whatever you like as long as you keep the title and you roughly follow the the story. So mm-hmm. um, the other authors in the in the series have have, have similarly um, diverged from uh, from the the story. I've, I think I've I followed it pretty closely, but at points I've 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 got gone off with things. And I think that that's interesting because uh, Mr. Woodhouse is is uh, Emma's father is one of the really interesting uh, characters in the um, in the story. And let's give him a bit of background. Uh, Jane Austen didn't really have to do that with um, many of her characters because their their position in society was clear because they owned such and such a house and an estate and whatnot. 
But we, we really need to know where, where Mr. Woodhouse came from and how did he have the money to, to lead the sort of life that he was leading, which was a, a leisurely life in the, in the country. And I said that he'd invented a, a sort of valve mechanism for um, dry ice, you know, the stuff that dermatologists mm-hmm, use mm-hmm. when they burn off bits of skin, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then that valve was, was, uh, could be used for other purposes. So, so we know where the money comes from. Well, that's actually, I think, fascinating because he's not dependent on some, you know, tenant farmers who, mm. you know, bringing the money in unseen and you know, yes. kind of unacknowledged. Well, you see, that, that I think, it would be the problem about doing a, a, a totally, um, uh, I suppose, unaltered version of uh, Emma in modern days and that nobody or very few people would lead that sort of sort of life. So I did want to make it have some claims to realism. It's not a realistic novel. I'm not doing social realism. <laughs> but at least I, I feel that I should indicate how these characters actually survive. So uh, Mr. Elton, who's the who's the, the uh, vicar, right. um, he owns two sets of buildings. He's got some apartments that he in, inherited and then a, an office block. And he's got problems with the Damp proofing of the office block, so so it, it it makes sense, I think, to 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 the reader. They 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 realise how these people can lead this sort of life because you know they are leading the same sort of life that the characters in the original did. Emma doesn't have to work really. No. Mr. Woodhouse doesn't doesn't work. Mr. Elton is is a volunteer, non stipendiary vicar, and that's because he's a bit of a rentier. He's got these properties and and so on. So. Um, I, I think that was uh, one way of doing it. Well, I appreciate it. I, I liked uh, meeting Mr. Woodhouse in his uh, hypochondriacal yes. view of the world <laughs> and everything is, is going to kill you in some way yes. or a form or another. And so you take lots of vitamins and uh, try to you know stave that off, whatever it might be. Yes, he, he, I find him a very attractive character. He's a terrific fussbot. He sits there and, and, <laughs> and worries about, about things and worried about germs, viruses, etc. Right. And he feels that... Uh, London is a very, very unhealthy place. And uh, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, infection in London, and he's concerned about um, cleanliness. He's the sort of sort of man who'd have an awful lot of hand sanitizer uh, around. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. After his wife dies, and he's left with two daughters, and he decides that he needs someone to care for them, and he considers hiring a governess, which is an anachronistic. Um, word today. Yes, yeah. But you managed to figure out a way to have it work because you set him in a in a place where uh, that doesn't seem so odd. Yes. Uh, I'm, I don't think that there are governesses called governesses today. There may be some people who have, have a governess. Uh, it's a very old-fashioned term. Uh, in fact, uh, what you have now is you have au pairs. Right. And au pairs, many au pairs, are to all intents and purposes doing the job that a governess would do. So we get this rather old-fashioned character, Miss Taylor, who applies from Edinburgh. And, of course, that's that's a complete, completely different bit as well. Um, she's I give her a bit of a back, back story as, uh, as well. I enjoyed meeting her too. She's, I, 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 I like her. She, she, she represents, a, I think, a sympathetic wisdom she understands Emma, she understands this girl has lost her mother and um, I think she's uh, she's quite a good uh, influence on, on Emma. She is and um, before uh, Miss Taylor comes, Miss Furhill 
is there, Mrs. Fur. Mrs. Furhill, yes. Is there. Yeah. She's the housekeeper, I guess. She's the housekeeper, yes. yes, yes. And she had an uh, assessment about Emma. Could you read that to us right here? Yes. There was already something about Emma that worried her, even if she was unable to put her finger on what it was. Was it headstrongness, a trait that you found in certain children who simply would not be told and who insisted on doing things their way? Her cousin Elsa's son had been like that and was always getting into trouble at school, unnecessarily so, she thought. Or was it something rather different, something to do with the desire to control? There were some children who were, to put it simply, bossy, and little girls tended to be rather more prone to this than little boys, or so Mrs. Furhill believed. Yes, she thought, that was it. Emma was a controller, and it was perfectly possible that Miss Taylor's influence would make it worse if you were brought up to believe that there was a very clear right way and wrong way of doing things, then you might well try to make other people do things your way rather than theirs. Once Mrs. Furhill had identified the issue, the signs of Emma's desire to control others seemed to become more and more obvious. On one occasion, Mrs. Furhill came across her playing by herself in the playroom, Isabella being in bed that day with heavy cold. In a corner of the room was the girl's doll's house, an ancient construction that had been discovered dusty and discoloured in the attic. Now, with its walls repainted and repapered, the house was once again in use, filled with tiny furniture and a family of dolls that the girls shared between them. Long hours were spent attending to this house and in moving the dolls from one room to another in accordance with the tides of doll private life that no adult could fathom. Unseen by Emma, Mrs. Furhill watched for a few minutes while Emma addressed her dolls and tidied their rooms. You are going to have to stay in your room until further notice, she scolded one, a small boy doll clad in a Breton sailor's blue and white jersey. And you, she said to another one, a thin doll with arms out of which the stuffing had begun to leak, you are never going to find a husband unless you do as I say. I love that voice. So when you, and I know, as you know, writers sit and, and listen to the words they've read, I've written, I assume, uh, carefully in your, your head. Did you try to sound like uh, Jane Austen, or did you try to sound like Alexander McCall Smith or some other other character entirely? Well, I don't think I really was trying to sound like Jane Austen. Uh, I think I wrote this in my own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that I do have different voices for the different series of books that I write. Well, that's what I've noticed. Yes, yes I do. I do. I do. And 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 this. It may be that I I slightly shaded it in 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 that direction, but that would have slightly been slightly archaic. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but that probably was done, uh, I think, subconsciously. I I didn't sit down and say that I want to. Um, so there's a touch, a touch of the archaic, but not enough. I hope to make people stumble, and uh, as I say, not deliberate. Uh, I think it's gone. I've 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 tried to get the. The, the pace and the sense of room that one finds in a in a in an Austen novel mm-hmm. um, that these are quiet books. Uh, Jane Austen wrote uh, wrote very quiet books, and that's why people like them. Uh, and I suppose probably my books are considered relatively quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that voice there wasn't contrived. The other thing about it was that I wrote it. I I, I wrote it over a period of about two and a half months. Uh, it just came to me. 
uh, I didn't I didn't have to sit there and think about it. I really didn't. I sat down and it just flowed out. So in chronological order? Yes. Wow. Oh, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, it was uh, really quite, uh, uh, quite wonderful for me because I, I loved doing it. And in fact, when I reached the end, I felt quite bereft. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to. I didn't have to change change it once I'd I'd, I'd written it. I made one or two little changes, but nothing much. When uh, one of the th- the scenes that I really love is when Emma's sister uh, has reached an age. Basically, Miss Taylor says to her father, "Well." Um, you know, your older girl really is not set suitable for going on to university, but finding a, a suitable husband would be a wise choice. Yes. So um, the way they do that <laughs> is by looking at the magazine, which I love when I go to England. I love picking up copies of it, which seem to be sitting around my in-law's house. And uh, it's called Country Life. That's and right, it is, yes. We have nothing like it here. Ah, right. So, right. Um, because it has uh, fo- well, you'll desc- I won't have to because you'll describe uh, country life as you read. Yes, it's this it's, it's a great magazine. I agree with you. I I, lo- I love reading it. It was a matter, they said, of submitting a good photograph to the editor of Country Life and asking him to consider featuring one's daughter in a future issue. Success was by no means guaranteed, even for the highly photogenic. There were many girls in many counties, all most eager to appear, or at least all having parents who were eager on their behalf. And parental support in this was crucial. Self-nomination was unheard of, as the very act of putting oneself forward would be incontrovertible proof that one was not suitable. The photograph had to be reasonably interesting. Country life girls did not simply sit for the camera against some featureless backdrop, but were pictured striking a pose in surroundings that gave an indication of their normal social milieu or talents. The daughters of major gentry, those with stately homes, might be photographed leaning against a stone pillar, the clear inference being that this was just one of the many stone pillars owned by her father. Those who had no stone pillars, but who had, say, a a small ornamental lake, would be photographed standing in front of this. Those who worked with horses, and this was a large group, might have a hunter in the background, or at least a saddle. Dogs were a popular accoutrement, usually Labradors, who would be at the young woman's side ready to retrieve or flush birds, enthusiasts all, and given the same appraising scrutiny by the readers, in many cases, as the young woman herself. (laughs) That is so beautifully written and so descriptive and so absolutely right, spot on, of the photos that are in the magazine. Thank you. Yes, it's it's great fun. I I subscribe to Country Life and I love receiving the weekly copy and and looking at the photograph, and in that, that it's not quite the front page. There's also stately there. homes and automobiles too. Uh, you, 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 there's a lot. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> there's a lot for sale. And the 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 girls featured. Sometimes they're already placed. They've got a fiance, and it mm. says mm-hmm. she will marry Mister So and So on such and such day. Uh, but in other uh, other occasions, um, nothing is said about it. And of course, everybody will say, "Oh no, no, this isn't a marriage. This has nothing to do with the marriage market." No, no. Uh, this is just showing what what uh, what nice girls there are who are now now uh, going out into the world, and that's the official position. But uh, of course, um, some of them do marry people who may have seen their photographs. I don't know. Right. Well, Emma um, actually, since uh, Miss Taylor decides that she is one who should and would benefit from university, yes. So she goes to the University of Bath, and I'm wondering why you picked that particular institution. Because uh, the reason being 
that I was just there in October and, and yes. saw many of the students, you know, around the, the town. Yes. And uh, I wonder, and they're, they're not um, the traditional British, you know, Oxbridge-looking set. No, they're probably a little bit more laid back in, yes. a, in, a, in a way. It's, it's, it's a blue nice... Blue jeans and comfortable shoes and... Yes. yes, but quite elegant blue jeans. You know, the jeans would be they wouldn't be they wouldn't be scruffy. Or if there were if there were rips in the in the denim, they'd be very well positioned rips. Right. I think uh, Bath, though they're probably fairly uh, fairly comfortably off students. Uh, the style, I would have thought, uh, a little bit on the on the well, I suppose a modern version of the preppy style, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, certainly a good place for somebody like Emma to go. And of course, Bath, as you know, features in the in the Austen novel. So it's a very good university for um, uh, Austenian pur- purposes. So she goes off there and does interior decoration, which uh, you know is perhaps a perfectly reasonable thing to study, but maybe not the most intellectually rigorous or demanding of the disciplines. I would have thought. Um, uh, cl- uh, classical Greek might be a little bit more difficult, but uh, <laughs> that's what she does. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's a useful. It gives her an ocu- uh, you know a title for an occupation. Yes, yes. If she ever should choose, you know, deign to to actually do that. Oh yeah, she wants to do that, but um, it's certainly it's not going to be the sort of occupation that would require her to keep a nine to five day. I don't think that's on her agenda. Mm-hmm. So finally, we come um, in the novel to. Miss Taylor actually does get married. Yes. And afterwards, Emma assumes that she will be consulted on how to decorate the home. Yes, yes. Yes, Miss Taylor does uh, uh, does get married, and she, she, she leaves the house. Mr. Woodhouse, of course, can't understand why anybody should want to leave a house as substantial as his. Mm-hmm. And uh, it shows how out of touch he is with the feelings of people around him. And she she goes uh, goes off and and uh, Emma feels that she she should decorate the uh, the the matrimonial <laughs> matrimonial home, especially uh, with a wet room, which I I had not <laughs> ever heard that phrase before. But if you could, uh, you know, let our listeners know what that is. Yes. Emma was confident that her old governess and friend would naturally turn to her for support and advice in the running of her new home. Already in their discussion of bathrooms. Emma had succeeded in interesting her in wet rooms, of which she previously had been largely ignorant, Edinburgh not being a place noted for that sort of thing. You tile everything, she explained, from floor to ceiling, or rather you do it in stone, or one of those new stone effect surfaces. Limestone looks very nice. Then you have the shower in one corner, and nothing between it and the rest of the room. No glass partition, nothing. Limestone? asked Miss Taylor. Remember in praise of limestone, and that line about why we love it, precisely because it dissolves in water. These days, Emma began, Miss Taylor interrupted her. I should hate to have a new bathroom that was visibly dissolving before my eyes. It would be disconcerting, to say the least. Limestone bathrooms don't dissolve, said Emma patiently. It would take hundreds of years. That poem was about limestone landscapes. She cast a firm glance in Miss Taylor's direction. There were occasions on which the governess could deliberately obfuscate. Conventional bathrooms are boring, she said. One bath, one loo, one basin. That's very, how shall I put it, one-dimensional. I should hate to be one-dimensional, said Miss Taylor. But on a serious note, I do like the idea of these wet rooms. Wet rooms are serious, said Emma, 
They give you a sense of freedom. You move from zone to zone within the room in a very fluid way. Miss Taylor had nodded. This, obviously, was what one learnt in Bath, where they should know about such things, of course, with their long experience of spas, and Bath was evidently the place where one learnt to talk about something as simple as showers and basins in a way that implied great sensitivity, great multi-dimensionality. I shall miss Emma, she thought. I shall miss this young person whom I have had such a hand in creating. And with that, she felt a pang of remorse. It is never easy to let go of another life. We're going to take a break. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where today's guest is the prolific award-winning writer Alexander McCall-Smith, talking about his latest challenge, updating one of Jane Austen's best-loved novels, Emma, A Modern Retelling. Okay, well, now we are finally caught up to where the original Emma began, which is after the wedding, and uh, we're heading on to do other things. There's a couple of um, surprises that I found in the book. Uh, one of them is Emma's reaction to Harriet upon their first meeting. Do you know where I'm going? I do. I suspect I know you where you're going. You suspect I know. Yes. So this is okay to go into? Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, All right. Because yes, right. yes. you kind of elaborate on a little later. You want to tell us a little bit about Harriet Smith? Harriet Smith is uh, a young woman who uh, is staying with uh, a woman, Mrs. Goddard, who has... Mrs. Uh, God. Uh, known as Mrs. God, called Mrs. God, who has uh, an English uh, as a foreign language school at a disused airfield. Uh, and Harriet is is there in, in um, some sort of capacity. She's, she's helping with the English classes. Uh, she comes from a rather mysterious background, as she did in the mm-hmm. original. Uh, in the original book, she she was obviously the natural daughter, as they would call them then. Right, which is a term I was unaware of before. So uh, she's. Um, you want to explain what that means? Well, a natural daughter would would be somebody who was born out of wedlock, um, and uh, in Jane Austen's time, a, a person in that position, a young woman in that position, would would have um, would have a difficult uh, social standing. Uh, so she she was a boarder in the original at at a school, mm-hmm. Mrs. Goddard's school. So I've kept fairly um, closely to 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 that. Um, so Harriet is 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 quite an intriguing character, and of course, very tempting for Emma to interfere with her life because Emma is is rather prone to do that. Emma was conscious that Harriet Smith was having an unexpected effect on her. She'd been curious about their new guest, but had not imagined that her curiosity could give rise to this sudden, quite intense interest. This quickening was not entirely novel. She'd felt it before, and it was familiar. But what surprised her was that she had always had this feeling for men, not for women. For a moment she allowed herself the thought, guilty and unwelcome, that her interest in Harriet was of the same nature. But it was not, she said to herself. Of course it was not. She'd never felt that about women, and would not now. She'd mistaken her feelings, she decided. This was simply excitement at meeting somebody new, somebody who might enliven her uneventful life at Hartfield. It was nothing more than that. Emma was not interested in men in quite the same way in which some of her contemporaries at university had been. There'd been boyfriends in Bath, but nothing very serious, and she'd not been particularly taken with the experience. Overrated, she'd remarked to a friend. Okay, I suppose, but not something one would go out of one's way for. 
The friend had looked at her in astonishment, and had said, "'What planet are you on, Emma?' To which Emma had replied, "'The same as you, but perhaps at a higher level.' <laughs> you must have delighted in writing that. I enjoyed that. Yes, yeah. yes. So you've set up a frisson here. Isn't yes. that the phrase? Yes, I think so, yeah. And uh, I don't remember it from Emma. Well, no, it 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 isn't it isn't there in Emma, and it, you know it wouldn't be in a novel of that that period. I think mm, really. Well, is it proscribed? Well, no, but I don't think I don't think it's the sort of thing that that uh, Jane Austen would um, would write about. Um, I think uh, it'd be difficult to speculate on on what um, Jane Austen's. Um, view of of matter-sexual was, mm-hmm. uh, I I should imagine that, uh, the, well, there would have been a lot of repression of discussion or even thinking about these things at that that stage. People people didn't. Of course, it was in a, in a sense, obviously, a very much more innocent time in that uh, people were not as aware of the source of feelings or emotions as they they are today. I mean, we we, we live in the uh, in the post post Freud uh, era, uh, if I might call it that, and and we we are obviously attuned to recognizing um, uh, sexual interest in circumstances in which in the past it, it it wouldn't be picked up. So I think that's the 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 difference. Now the reason why I alluded to that in in my version of Emma was not because I was going to make um, the attraction between. Um, Emma and Harriet Smith, um, and overtly and clearly the sexual one. It 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 isn't uh, in my in my book. It isn't really there. Not full blown. Not full blown. Not full blown. I'll give you that. And the the the, the reason why I, I brought that up was that there has been um, in the uh, I suppose the the, the 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 literary criticism surrounding uh, this particular novel of Jane Austen's. There have been people who have raised this this issue and said that the attraction uh, that uh, um, Emma has for for Harriet is 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 of a sexual nature that's I mean there are articles about about that mm. and so I I think uh, it's reasonable enough to imagine that Emma herself might have wondered ab- uh, about this and of course you know as we all know um, sexuality is 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 a pretty much of a continuum and people People were slotted in somewhere along the the spectrum, and right. and, and so uh, I think it's perfectly feasible that she might have felt uh, fairly intensely for Harriet, and uh, she then wonders, well, is this because I'm attracted to her in that way? And I think she concludes that she 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 isn't. I think Emma's relationship with men is a bit unusual. Uh, she's certainly um, she doesn't fall for them in, in quite the same way as other uh, other characters in Jane Austen would, would fall for, for men. Of course, she's, she's struggling with very strong social expectations. She, she's uh, in a position where um, girls of, of, of her particular class and her position in, in English society at that time had fairly limited options that's why they all tried to get a husband as as soon as possible, and uh, that meant that their position was assured and their income was assured mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The difference with Emma, of course, in in the original and indeed in my version, is that she she has money, uh, so she wouldn't be 
subjected to quite the same um, pressure as uh, as a young woman who didn't have money. If would I'm, be. I think I'm correct in saying that Emma is the only of Jane Austen's heroines who has money. I, Enough to yes, you know, continue yes. on without needing a man. Uh, yes, of the of the central heroines. Yes, I mean, there are I'm other right. young young women who. I meant. I meant. John, the, yes, book, right. yes, and and I I I think in a sense, if the original, um, we see Emma knuckling down to these social uh, expectations at the end, and uh, Jane Austen rails in a sense, in a very polite way, rails against these social constraints, uh, and. In a way, it's rather sad that we see Emma saying, oh, "Well, I have to, I have to comply like right. everybody else." Right. Um, so here, I think we get a more spontaneous and um, appreciation of um, uh, George Knightley. I think that she she wants to take up with him. She's not doing it just because it's expected mm-hmm. of her. Mm-hmm. I think she she uh, she wants. She's fond of him. She's fond of him. I think I think that's what we see, and we, in a, in a sense, um, Jane Austen's books are about virtue. Really, there we see virtue in 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 Austen, and um, I think that uh, George Knightley is is a virtuous character. He's he's a good man. He comes across so, in a, in a way, he's the the more virtuous of the of the two. Mm-hmm. Of course, the the husband of um, Emma's sister is not quite mm. in that category, being a man of about town in London. Well, that's right. He, his brother, uh, John Knightley, uh, went off to be a photographer in London. Uh, Heavens. And, of course, Mr. Uh, poor Mr. Woodhouse, when he sees John Knightley to come, coming to take the photographs of, of his daughter and sees this um, rather dangerous young man on a Ducati motorbike mm-hmm. and sees her going off on the pillion of the... Uh, uh, with a helmet, though. With, 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 a, <laughs> with a helmet. Um, I think uh, he his his uh, uh, his re- reaction is one of shock. Um, but of course, then she goes off and 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 marries and has a, a lot of children, and and so you can see you you can you can see how she she ends up. She she's quite happy with the things. She's got her her, her rather attractive young man. Um, he's looking after her. He's presumably got a bit of money as well because he's one of the Knightleys, and she's living in London and having quite a nice time. Right? Yeah. Right. So uh, she she's she's okay. Emma's above all that. Emma's too intelligent to accept that. Well, let's get back a little bit to uh, Emma and Harriet. I sort of saw her like you know the Henry Higgins type, the Pygmalion <laughs> you know story, uh, Greek myth, where she isn't necessarily really in love with her. Uh, what do we call her? She's the mentor to this. Girl. Yes, she yeah. you know wants to guide her, and yeah. she's she's quite naive. And um, Emma kind of delights in being able to tell her the way of yes. the world. Correct? Yes, yes. She's very naive, Harriet. Yes. She appears to be very naive. However, we do have uh, she decide anyway. She decides to marry her off. Yeah, right. And then we have a discussion about choices. Hmm. So let's let's share that. Well, it's better now," said Harriet. "We have choices." Emma looked doubtful. "Have we such as? Well, we can do the jobs we want to do. We can qualify to do various things. We can have a career." Emma conceded grudgingly. "Maybe," she said. "That may be true to an extent, but there's one choice you've left out." Harriet waited for her. 
you've left out the possibility of leaving it all up to men. What do you mean by that? Emma looked out of the window. The thought had occurred to her that she should not interfere, but it was only a passing notion and was discarded. I mean that one can let men pay the bills. She paused. Harriet was listening. You can still find men who are prepared to look after women. There are still a few women who don't have to work. They stay at home? Men do the work? Emma shrugged. That's a simple way of putting it. You could say that it's an exchange. Men might have the money. Women exchange their, their friendship for practical support. They look after the men emotionally. They cook for them and so on. In return, men worry about the bills. Don't you think that that sounds like a fair exchange? Harriet did not require much time to think. I do, she said. It's not as if you're committed to the man forever, said Emma. Men can be a temporary fix. She smiled and noticed that Harriet smiled too. They don't mind, of course. Everybody knows where they stand. It's that little, that, that two or three paragraphs that kind of summarize how you've approached this novel, isn't it? Possibly. Oh, well, it's my interpretation. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> by, by bringing it into the present day, but yeah. still rooting it into the uh, societal constraints of the original. Well, yes, yes, yes. I think that's fair enough. What you say is uh, fair enough. Um, I think if I had tried to write a contemporary novel of a social realistic nature um, about an Emma-type situation. I could have done that. I could have changed all the facts, and they don't have to be living in the countryside, and Mr. Woodhouse doesn't have to be the sort of person he is, and, and so on. Uh, but I, I decided that I would try to keep quite a lot of the the Austen material, so to speak, the, the, the feel, the background, the tone, the pace, and just make a few changes that would make it vaguely credible as a contemporary uh, contemporary novel. Now, uh, what I'm also doing, I suppose, is I'm showing that however much the external features of society may change, and however um, far we may get from the, from the social constraints and the social attitudes at the beginning of the 19th century, human nature is still with us, and people may be doing many of the same things that they did back then and, and uh, earlier on. So the, the idea of, of, of marrying in such a way that you're looked after, uh, that would have been something which would, would have been very common in Jane Austen's time. and Indeed, it was regarded as a, as a, a t totally uh, acceptable objective. Um, the now, desired objective, isn't it? The desire, indeed. Yes. It, was the, it was the aim. No, no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't say that uh, overtly, but there will be people who still do that. Yes, but what I like is that you've had Emma say, "Well, you don't have to stay with that person forever." Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, that's right. That 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 of course what what changes, and and indeed when she sets up this, uh, she wants to set up a romance between um, Philip Elton and uh, and and Harriet. She right. sees Harriet as taking advantage of of him mm -hmm. and having a year with him during which time they can travel and she, she'll see some of the bright lights that she can't currently afford to see. So uh, I think when it comes to marriage, people still do a lot of calculation. I think they do. And they don't admit it, but I, I suspect that they, they are. They're looking at, they're looking at their, their prospects 
and they may they may well say, I'm going to be fine materially if I marry this person. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that must happen. And indeed you see it. I mean, sometimes it's so obvious when you see somebody who is very, very considerably older than the than the, 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 the than the partner or the spouse, right, right. and you think, well, the trophy wife, exactly, exactly. And the trophy wives will, of course, all say they've or married the trophy for love. husband, I guess, or the trophy husband. The either way, right. uh, they'll all say, oh, "Well, we did this for love," but well, it's love can follow after there's been uh, a serious appraisal of that's the bank right. account. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So I want to go back a little bit to your um, starting out because I am trying to remember what happened with Zimbabwe. I know it used to be Rhodesia. Yes. Um, it, it started it off as one of these um, company concession states. Mm -hmm. uh, then then it became – Cecil Rhodes. Yes. 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 Uh, then it became um, – well, Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia. Northern yes. Rhodesia is current, uh, is, became Zambia right. on independence. And um, Southern Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. There was a period when it was in a federation with uh, what was Nyasaland, mm -hmm. uh, which then became Malawi. Mm -hmm. So the three countries linked in a, a, a federation. So it it was a it was a, a colony. It was a self governing col uh, colony. It wasn't a dominion as say Canada or Australia were. Right. It was a self governing uh, colony, and then it became on independence a, a republic. So I, I spent my childhood there. I'm very much out of touch with it. Right. I, well, I, I was trying to go there. Your father yeah. was a, an academic. At no, no, he wasn't. No, I'm no, sorry. No, is that the no. wrong phrase? Uh, no, no. My my father uh, my my father worked in Bulawayo. He was a civil servant, a public prosecutor. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he uh, he'd gone out there, and and uh, th my parents went back to 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 the UK, and as did uh, as as did uh, as did we. And I spent most of my life thereafter mm -hmm. um, in Scotland, uh, which is where I live uh, live now. Right. But you went back to Africa, to Botswana. Yes, I... Which I, is, I must tell our listeners, is of the former African colonies, is probably the most enlightened, would you say, as far as putting the money back into the infrastructure and education? Yes, Botswana is very well, very well governed. Uh, Botswana was a protectorate. It was a British protectorate until 1966. Mm -hmm. And they were very fortunate in that they had uh, a very uh, admirable uh, first uh, president who mm -hmm. was Suretsikana, right. uh, who was the pa paramount chief of the Bamangwato people and, and uh, a man of, of great stature. And he set the moral tone for the for the country. So there was, uh, there, there wasn't very much corruption. But Swana's uh, much less has been much less corrupt than uh, than many other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a very very well run uh, country, and that meant that the diamond revenues, when diamonds were discovered, very substantial deposits of diamonds mm -hmm. were discovered, that the money from the diamond in industry. Uh, was ploughed back into the infrastructures you you said to have very good roads, schools, hospitals, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a peaceful country. They're they're, they're peaceful people, and uh, it's it's a remarkable remarkable place. Uh, they've got um, very fine um, conservation areas the, in the central Kalahari, up in the Okavanga Delta, and, mm -hmm. and so on. So where um, the baboons do Macbeth? Where where they do the Macbeth? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, that 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 actually flowed from a, a visit that I I made some years ago to the Okavanga Delta, and I'd met two American primatologists who were doing very important 
um, primatological studies in the Okavanga Delta. And uh, after this conversation uh, with these uh, primatologists, um, it occurred to me that female baboons have Lady Macbeth issues. In other words, they're ambitious for their for their male baboon. And so that set me off on that particular track. I thought maybe they're always washing their hands. <laughs> well, I, yes, and that's interesting. You see, I suspect they don't ex- they don't experience guilt if that was what uh, uh, caused Lady Macbeth to, to, to wash her hands. Guilt, I suppose, overtly in the play, it's guilt, but she may also have suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. Maybe no CD. That's gross. <laughs> that's gross. So... Uh, we 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 started this off, and and you mentioned that you became a full time writer. But uh, what was late number one ladies detective agency your first really um, hit? Shall we call it? Yes, it it, it, it was. Uh, but before that, I'd written a number of books. I'd written quite a number of children's books. I wrote over thirty children's books at that stage, um, and I wrote collections of short stories and and radio plays and so on. And then I sat down one day and read what I thought was going to be a short, short story about a woman living in Botswana who's precious from Matsui as it happens. And uh, I then expanded that into a book. And that took some time to take off. Initially, it was published by a small publisher in Scotland Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore didn't, I suppose, get quite the circulation that uh, one might have wished. But we had some very generous reviews and then I wrote, I wrote uh, two or three sequels to it, uh, which were imported into the United States by Columbia University Press in New York, who had a, an arrangement with this uh, press in, in Scotland. And so it got into book bookstores in, in the U.S. And, and for a while, nothing happened in that they ordered just small numbers of copies. And then uh, people started to, to, to pass it from hand to hand. And that, that was the beginning of it. And then then the books were published by very large publishers in New York. So the books, my books, took off in the United States rather than back in the UK, which is a the a reversal usually of the way mm-hmm. way it works. So I'm very grateful to my um, American readers because they uh, they 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 discovered my books and and um, since then uh, I've written a considerable number of novels and it's it's enabled me that support has enabled me to write what I I want to write. Right. Well, it's an interesting, if our um, listeners do not know the number one ladies detective agency, they should go out and find a copy, at least one, probably start with the first one. Would you agree? Yes, uh, that, that's a, a good place to Because we meet the start. characters that Yes, way. that's right, yes, yes. And they are a unique set of people. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I mean, they, they are, they, they represent people you could actually meet in Botswana. There are... There are types like that. That was my next question. Yeah. Did you base this on people you know? Well, not on actual people, not actual historical composites. people. They're composites, yes. Right. Uh, so I met people who were quite like Mara Motswe. I met many women who were like her and met many men who were like Mr. J.L.B. Matakone. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think uh, they're, they're typical of a certain sort of character in Botswana. Of course, there are lots of people who aren't like her. But nonetheless, uh, she she represents a type that does exist, which is a very nice type. Very nice. Uh, type. Very uh, forgiving, kind, kind. Yes. Uh, but you know, not pious. She's got her very human, intelligent human things. Very intelligent. Um, great intuition. Mm-hmm. You know, she 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 can get to the to the bottom of a matter really by by um, using her her intuitive ability. So. 
that's that's how I did it. Right. Now you've done. You call yourself a. a, a Unrepentant serialist, is that correct? Uh, serial novelist. Yes. Serial novelist, okay. <laughs> yes, I, I'm doing, I suppose I've got four or five series of books, which I, uh, uh, some of which I keep more current than others. So every year I write a, um, a number one ladies detective agency mm-hmm. novel in that series, and, and I write an Isabel Dalhousie novel in that series. That's the Sunday Philosophy Sunday Club. Sunday Philosophy Club right. series. And then I do um, Scotland Street. I write mm-hmm. a Scotland Street for a novel, 44 Scotland Street. So there are three absolutely regular series, and then there are series that are more intermittent. Uh, Corduroy Mansions, I've written three novels in that series, and then right. the Portuguese Irregular Verb series has got four books in that series. So, so uh, yes, the serial novelism is, is something that uh, um, I've been unable to, uh, I've been a, unable to overcome, uh, and I just do it. Tell me about now the next one from the, uh, um, the World According to Bertie, Bertie Pollock. Yes. Who's a six-year-old, precocious. He's one of my favorite characters, little Bertie. He's been six for, well, eight years because I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't given him a birthday. Although in the recent recent book, I, I gave him a birthday. Will he be the same at seven? Uh, he'll be the same at seven, and he's going to stay seven for a very long time as well. Poor little boy. He wants to be 18 because he's read that when you're 18, you can leave your mother. And right. Bertie, Bertie has a very, very pushy mother. Uh, who's a frightful woman called Irene, and she's mm-hmm. she's got all sorts of theories about bringing up children, and and uh, poor little Bertie uh, feels pretty trapped by by this. She makes him go to yoga classes. Uh, he has psychotherapy. He has to have saxophone lessons and so on. Very is, busy life. Yeah, learning Italian as well. He right. learns Italian. Right. Very very busy. Some of these little boys are terribly busy, but I I, I think I think that parents have to be pushy to an extent. I think the idea that you can be a parent and, and not push your your child in any way is is suspect, because if we didn't have pushy piano, uh, uh, parents, nobody would learn the piano. We'd, the piano would become extinct because you need to have a pushy. <laughs> Got to have someone yeah. making sure you, you sit down and it you, goes half an hour. You right? sit down yes. and do your do your right. scales. That's right. So uh, uh, and people don't like being told to sit down and do their scales. Um, but uh, I mean, think of think of all of us. I would have loved to to have learned the piano properly as a boy. I wish I had. Mm-hmm. And of course, the piano—it's too late later on. You can't really learn it as an Different adult. Part of the brain, brain pathways right. aren't aren't there. They just right. aren't there. You can learn a you can learn a, um, a single line of music instrument such as a wind instrument, but a piano no. Foreign languages the same way. Do it young. Well, do it young, yes. I mean, you you can you can. I think you can learn a learn a language. You can get get sort of reasonably good with the language later on. But it's much much easier, as you say, to do it when you're young. Mm-hmm. So let's go on to the girl who married a lion. I assume this is a, a really particularly uh, fond part of your repertoire. Yes, uh, these are stories, uh, folk, folk stories, African folk stories. From southern southern Africa, mm-hmm. and um, I love I love those stories. They're they're like all folk stories. There are certain themes that you find are are uh, there, which you'll find in in any body of folk literature. Right. Uh, can I can I read the opening lines? From yes, of course. Yes, a rich man like Mzizi had many cattle. Would normally be expected to have children. Unhappily, his wife Pity Pity was unable to produce children. 
She consulted many people about this, but although she spent much on charms and medicine that would bring children, she remained barren. Pitapiti loved her husband and made her sad to see his affection for her vanishing as he waited for the birth of children. Eventually, when it was clear that she was not a woman for bearing a child, Pitapiti's husband married another wife. Now he lived in the big crawl with his new young wife, and Pitapiti heard much laughter coming from the new wife's hut. Soon there was a first child, and then another. Pitapiti went to take gifts to the children, but she was rebuffed by the new wife. For so many years, Mazizi wasted his time with you, the new wife mocked. Now, in just a short time, I have given him children. We do not want your gifts. And there it's set up. Yes, yes. That little story, um, which becomes quite strange after that. Yes, it does. Uh, because she, she, this this poor lady who doesn't have the children, is working in the fields and is approached by some guinea fowl who say, we'll be your children, uh, which is a lovely notion. Uh, that little story, I, rem I rem distinctly remember where I heard it. I heard it in 1980, I think it was. And I was gathering these stories, talking to people who remembered them. And this uh, elderly woman told me this story. And she, she broke into snatches of song as she, as she told me. So there was a little song for the guinea fowl and a little song for something else. And I, it's, it's, it's a very clear memory, and it was a lovely, lovely memory. Well, I'm glad you shared it with the rest of us. Thank you so very much, Alexander McCall Smith. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where today's guest is the prolific award-winning writer, Alexander McCall Smith, talking about his latest challenge, updating one of Jane Austen's best-loved books in Emma, a modern retelling. Our studio engineer for today's show is Jesse Fancushen. Our KRCB-FM program director is Sean Knight. The administrative assistant is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for a playful word-by-word -word conversation with several of the winning playwrights from this year's 6th Street Playhouse New Voices on the Vine one-act play contest from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, the second Sunday in May. Until then... We leave you with a consideration from Alexander McCall Smith, the number one ladies' detective agency. We don't forget. Our heads may be small, but they are as full of memories as the sky may sometimes be full of swarming bees, thousands and thousands of memories of smells, of places, of little things that happened to us and which came back unexpectedly to remind us who we are.